to the Flow State Performance Podcast. This is your host, Jira Taylor. I'm coming at you from Flow State HQ, which is uh, Mount Coolum in Queensland, Australia. I'm looking at the mountain right now. Um, it's a kind of cloudy day, but it's a beautiful day, and I can't wait to go and climb that thing. So today, um, we have a very special treat. <laughs> They're all special, but they feel that way to me anyway. Um, what I love about podcasting and, and um, I guess, being an entrepreneur and running Flow State is that I get to uh, explore like the, the way that life seems to have been set up by myself is that if there's something that I'm interested in or someone that I'm interested by, I get to like connect with them and then learn from them and then ask them to come on the podcast so they can share their awesomeness with you guys. Um, and that's exactly the thing that's happened here. So I, I became interested in learning about Tantra and embodiment um, and as you know, self-awareness practices. And trusted friends of mine um, who have a very refined game when it comes to the inner path uh, said to me, I remember last year, Jiro, I've been learning with this, uh, with this pair on, called Michaela Boehm and Steve James and they're masters of what they do. And as soon as I heard those words, masters of what they do, I was like, right, I locked it into my subconscious. I'm going to learn with these guys one day. And then a year later, the opportunity came about for me to go on retreat with these two. And I did that last month, and it was a very beautiful experience where I got to gain such deep levels of awareness, particularly around my the uncomfortability, uh, new levels of vulnerability. I really learned a lot about intimacy and heart connection with another human being and, and, and explored the wonderfully juicy areas of erotic friction, erotic tension um, that is all part of uh, this particular Tantra tradition. Now, I asked Steve James, who was one of the two teachers on that retreat, um, if he would like to come on for a podcast. And we kind of had no idea what we we're going to talk about, but I kind of, that's the way I like it. I like to have very natural conversations that flow from one topic to other seamlessly. And when you are in the presence of Steve, you understand that um, you don't get to be the person with the kind of presence that he has um, without a very interesting story. Um, to tell and that's what we explore in this particular podcast so today you're going to learn a lot about the power of ritual um, you're going to learn a lot about uh, learning itself um, Steve's got some very interesting insights into learning into prioritization um, into these beautiful pillars of life design itself um, he's a he's a wonderful man I'm going to leave it at that um, just to let you dive in I don't think we need much more preamble other than to say like usual, please check out Flow Tribe if you're looking for your tribe. Um, this is a community that's just buzzing right now. There's um, 105 people in there, all exploring their uh, consciousness in different ways, all exploring the question of what does human potential mean? And we're helping each other. We're supporting each other and inspiring each other and providing like very tangible pathways to um, develop in certain ways to simple mechanisms like uh, feedback loops and accountability and things like that. And the momentum is building. There's going to be some great fun explore, uh, challenges thrown in there soon. So please check out flowtribe.co. And without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Steve James, um, a modern day master. All right. Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast, Steve. Um, <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Jira. Excellent. So just to give the, the, the listener or viewer some background, so I was um, fortunate enough to do 
five days worth of training with you and Michaela Bohm in Byron Bay recently, uh, which I really enjoyed. Thank you so much for holding that space. Um, it was, and I've spoken to many friends about it. It was, well, first of all, it was about em embodiment and tantra and intimacy, um, terms like erotic friction were ones that were used quite a lot. Um, yeah. Please, please give a little bit of a, a, a description of what, of how you describe what you do, because it's always going to be better from you. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, that was a very fun one. We, uh, you mentioned Michaela Boehm, who I teach with, um, a great deal of the time actually um actually at her house right now with her, uh, her and her husband's place here in california um what i would say i do is in a certain way helping people one-on-one -on -one or in workshops and i talk a bit about how that relates to michaela but uh to helping people one-on-one -on -one and in workshops empowering them bringing clarity freedom in in three areas really the area of the body which is as you mentioned embodiment and that has lots and lots of things. The area of the mind, uh, which you know includes education of various kinds, but also meditation, actually, um, as you know from from the five day, and also circumstances, uh, bringing clarity, freedom, empowerment in the area of their circumstances, which includes relationships. Um, it can include business. Depends on the situation. Now, the situation that we in which we met, um, I was teaching with uh, Michaela. And she's uh, got, uh, she's been doing, let's see, I started at the beginning a couple of uh, degrees in Jungian psychology, forensic psychology. She was a, a profiler for a while. She ran a drug rehab for a few years in Malibu. Um, she's Austrian, but she lives in California now. And she's did a couple of counseling, 24 years, something like that. And she's a lineage holder of um, a Kashmir Shaivism tradition uh, which is sort of tan tantric uh, kind of thing so the thing we were doing was a, a mixture of all those things actually a mixture of embodiment we did a lot of that a lot of um, investigating the nature of as you say erotic friction uh, the nature of attraction the nature of how these things work intimacy the heart connection um, and things like that so it's a quite a, a wide range yeah, it's beautiful. One of the biggest takeaways I had from that five days was this very simple model of um, building uh, availability is the word that that, that was used, um, which which I guess is is almost like a refined sense of presence. It's almost like presence plus a little bit. It's presence plus like an intention to be available, I guess. Um, mm. and, and and for that leading to this being sort of like the gateway to creating a a, a a heart connection with another person um and then that leading to the possibility of of more whether that's in an erotic sense or i guess just resonance with a, with a human being um that was really helpful for me to under to understand um i, I guess i guess presence in our culture has, has become like many things um kind of like it it, it becomes so pervasive the, the word or the concept that it loses its kind of meaning um mm. but um what are your like did I, did I describe that three part kind of sequence accurately or how how would you sort of upgrade that yeah i think that's quite accurate we tend to think of it um one of the one of the sort of ways we look at it is intimacy heart connection and erotic friction and 
Um, to go somewhat in reverse, erotic friction is the art of, of, of pulling apart um, for the sake of the, you could say, sexual attraction or the sexual hotness, that sort of thing. And, you know, Michaela often makes the point that the sorts of qualities that produce a good relationship are not always the sorts of qualities that produce uh, a hot sexual connection, let's say. And most people, when they first get together, they have tremendous uh, sexual chemistry, or they've got pretty decent sexual chemistry, or at least they have sex at least sometimes. You know? And as the relationship goes on and on and on, it, uh, and they become more and more resonating, you know, they have more and more in common, and that's what makes a good relationship. Similar goals, similar sort of basic worldview, similar underpinnings and similar conditionings and so on. That's what makes people sort of compatible in a certain sense. Um, but as the lives converge and begin to weave together, perhaps living together, having children together, pulling in the same direction as a, as a pair, sometimes that uh, intimate connection, the they, um, sexual connection can dampen, and that's not used to anyone, I don't think. So it's hard to find someone who you have compatibility with in that sense. It's not actually that easy. Um, but it is relatively easier to learn how to learn the how to pull apart uh, erotic friction in a certain sense put like pulling apart between the individuals so that there's a sense of that sexual spark comes back again and that's quite a big, big part of what we're doing in that five day we're teaching people actually it's quite mechanical it's quite in a certain way procedural or straightforward you can learn how to pull things apart to have that um, hot connection um, so uh, that's the erotic friction part the intimacy and, you know, and, and, that's, and that's very much Michaela's domain, the erotic friction part, where she's had so many decades of, of couples counseling and so on and seen many of those things. And that term erotic friction comes from her lineage, actually, Kashmir Shivers and lineage. So she's really seen an awful lot of couples, what works, what doesn't work, um, how, how can you revive, in, under what conditions can you revive sexual spark? Uh, what, what are some of the, the strategies that are effective there? And she's seen that you know, in, in a clinical practice over, over a long time. And regarding intimacy, intimacy, heart, erotic friction, intimacy, the way I like to think of that is, and again, it's a word that has many different uh, meanings, very, for many different very valid meanings. Some, for some people, it's a colloquial term for sex, actually, it can be. So we, ne we define it a bit more narrowly. And I like to think of intimacy as, you could say, feeling the sensations that reveal the presence of whatever it is you're intimate with. So if you're, you can have intimacy with the body. Often they do that in meditation. Actually, you sit there and you feel the sensations that reveal the presence of your body. And if you did that now, for instance, uh, if you were to feel the sensations that reveal the presence of your body, or the listeners uh, or the viewers might do that. Now you might be able to feel your bottom on the chair, your hands in your lap, and maybe your clothing on your skin. And in a certain sense, there are two things happening there. There's the raw sensory data flowing in that reveals the presence of your body. And there's the labels, the mind's labels and categorizations. Um, that's my bottom on the chair. That's my hands in my lap. That's my clothing on my skin. And there's an art to tuning in to the raw sensory data, even as the mind labels and categorizes, that's my bottom on the chair, 
That's my hand in my lap. That's the clothing on my skin. There's an art to tuning into the raw sensory data. So you're sort of current in a certain sense. And often when we are in relationship with the body or an individual, um, we summarize them. I'm looking at you, Jiro. I've met you, of course, so I see you. And I don't necessarily perhaps even really see you. I might not notice you've had a haircut, for instance, because I just sort of see Jiro and then my, my processing in my brain goes, okay, Jiro, we don't need to think anymore about that. There he is. End of story. And so with, uh, with these sorts of intimacy ideas, getting intimate with your body, which has all sorts of implications, not only in relationship, sexual relationship or romantic relationship, but in business, in uh, physical fitness, training, high performance, anything. Has, you know, this is a, a foundational skill that's useful, I think, in many applications. Um, if we could tune into the raw sensory data that reveals the presence of our body, then we're heading towards this idea of intimacy, feeling the sensations that you can actually feel and looking at your partner and seeing them, taking a moment to see them actually as they arise. You could say seeing their visual form as it sort of springs into into manifestation or whatever, you know, springs into being. And that's quite wonderful. It's quite a fresh thing. And, it, you know, you can apply that in all sorts of ways. One of my favorite ways is to feel my body. But you can also look out, looking out with your eyes and just seeing, in a certain sense, the raw sensory data flowing in through the eyes. Even as the mind labels and categorizes, you don't have to stop it. But to tune into the raw sensory flow um, is wonderful practice, one of my favorites. And that's sort of intimacy. And then heart, I'm going on and on here, but at heart is the uh, humanizing tool. And it, this is a limited, specific, you could say, technical definition um, that we used in, in when we were working together in that workshop. So I'm not suggesting this is the, the ultimate definition of heart, by no means. But in this context, it's a bit like the humanizing, the tool of humanization. The heart reminds us that we're in a relationship with a person. Mm -hmm. And that we can sometimes forget. Sometimes we commodify the people we're in relationship with. We sort of make a buffet of them to serve our the needs, our needs, our needs of our woundings or the needs of or just our needs, our needs of our ego or needs of our right or wrong needs. And we make a sort of a buffet of them and we forget it's actually a person over there. Yeah. Not just a wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or something like that. And the heart helps to move a person when we did these sorts of practices of connecting heart to heart and so on, helps to move someone from what I sometimes say the dazzling light of projection, the dazzling light of projection to the clearer light of intimacy. And I'm implying there that there's something about projection, the idea of of, in a certain sense, I, I'm seeing Jiro, but I'm also seeing my idea of Jiro. Really, I'm interacting with my idea of Jiro, not so much Jiro. And it's easy to, it's easy to lose touch there. Um, and in fact, necessary to lose touch there. If we were totally intimate with uh, you know, everything, I don't know how, how that would work processing power-wise in the brain. But anyway, um, that's what the heart does. It reminds us of that humanizing influences, uh, humanizing influence. Mm, beautiful. And the last thing I guess to say would be these are essential precursors. Well, they're not essential, actually. This is the funny thing. You can have erotic friction, 
without those things? Absolutely you can. You can have an erotic connection with somebody without really even paying attention to them. It's quite possible to go through the entire mating ritual with somebody and perhaps even proceed into a relationship with them. It's entirely possible to do that in a certain sense without really ever meeting them. The entire, and this is often the way, you know, as you get to, as the hormones, uh, you know, the bonding hormones and so on, uh, the, the honeymoon period recedes, what you're left with is uh, the actual person you're in a relationship with. And very often, <laughs> you know, people, uh, when that happens, people go, oh, my gosh, this is, you know, I don't like this person. I don't even know this person, actually. I know what we'll do. We'll get married. You know, that, that kicks the can down the road. And then another flush of activity and sort of so on. Get married a couple of years later. Uh oh, this is not really going. This is not really. This is a bit uh, something missing here. We'll have a kid. And they have a kid. And then after a while, oh, this isn't going. We'll have another one. They have another one. And then a couple of years later, they divorce. And that's very, very common. That pattern is very, very common. A kind of a kicking of the can down the road, delaying the, the time when you really meet that, that person um, with, you know, grand events, big gestures, lots of activity. Mm, it's interesting so it's very very possible to have an erotic connection with somebody without intimacy without the heart but if you have the intimacy in the heart that brings a very different sort of quality to the erotic uh, connection the erotic friction part you know the sort of sexual spark whatever um and so on i, won yes. I wonder if this the advanced teachings of erotic friction came about from a culture that had things like arranged marriages, you know, which, which are quite unromantic notions, but, but perhaps in a practical sense, it was like, okay, we're having arranged marriages where people aren't actually in love before they married, before they marry for all sorts of cultural and societal reasons. So therefore we need to teach people how to build eroticism and intimacy into these relationships that don't have that already default state of like romantic love. What do you think about that? I, it could be the case. Like I say, we're edging a bit uh, into Michaela's territory there. Mm -hmm. I'm, I am hesitant just because she has so much more experience than me in, in the areas of counseling and so on. I'm hesitant to uh, pronounce on where that stuff comes from. You know, it's from her lineage and so on. So, I mean, I could speculate, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. But cool. um, that's sort Let's of Let's go back domain. into your lineage. So um, your moniker for uh, the, the work, and by the way, everybody, uh, there's a fantastic podcast, uh, sorry, um, SoundCloud channel, which is Steve's, um, and it's uh, called Guru Viking, um, which I've been enjoying very much. So thank you for, for that. Great. Um, so let's go into a little bit about your lineage. So where, where, where did you grow up and what were sort of the, the circumstances of your upbringing? Mm -hmm. I was born in Scotland and I grew up on the Shetland Islands. Mm. And the Shetland Islands, I don't have you heard of that place? Jura? Yeah, yeah, I have. It's, it's sort of, it, yeah. it occupies, in my mind, it's like far flung and remote and I, and I can yeah. imagine rather bleak. It is all of those things, yes. The Scots are a doer people at best. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, Shetland's got its charm. But you basically go, not many people have heard of it, so I, when I saw your face sort of recognize it, I was surprised. You go to the top of Scotland, and you go up. And if you've hit Norway, you've gone too far. Mm -hmm. Or if you want, you could go to the bottom of Norway and go down. 
And if you've hit Scotland, you've gone too far. So either way. Um, and it's in between there somewhere. A little island. And that's where I grew up. Um, and from, you know, five years old, I began training in martial arts. At that time, uh, Wadaru Karate it was. And they took it very seriously, those people that trained there. And we also had meditation as part of that. We just do a sort of a, a sort of a shikantazid uh, kind of um, just sitting, kind of Zen style, just sitting sort of un, unguided, you know, at the end of class, 10 minutes or so. Um, so that was my early introduction there. And I went on to study you know, various different martial arts and so on. And the furthest I took that side of things was with Western fencing, you know, like the musketeers sort of thing. And uh, there I was um, on the Scottish team in my teens for that. So that's as far as I took, you could say, competitive um, sport or competitive uh, martial, martial-y sorts of things. So that was very informative for me growing up. And also, you know, and this is something I talk about very often, but, it's, um, but it is quite relevant. I was an altar boy, mm. a Catholic altar boy. Now, this is the beginning of either a very good story or a very bad story. This is a, this is a good story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, my mother was, um, is Catholic, and uh, we, I went with my younger brother there mm. to the Catholic uh, church. And we would go, there were three masses. Mass is sort of the service, you know, and we'd go in the morning one, early morning one. And then there was a sort of middle of the morning one later on, which was full of the guitars and the happy clappy and that sort of thing. And then there's an evening one as well. And the morning one had no music in it, just the liturgy of the mass. And any of you who've been to sort of a Catholic kind of um, traditional sort of Catholic mass in a way, it's prearranged. It's predictable. It's a certain ritual. It's a certain sequence. And I was an altar boy there, which means your altar boy's job is to wear a very fetching kind of sort of tea cozy sort of outfit. And you carry the candle at this point to here. And then you take the chalice from that table and you give it to the priest and he does some stuff. And then you take it away and then you kneel over there with the candle. And then you take the candle over here. And it's this whole sort of choreography that you do for the entire thing. So you're bodily involved as well as audibly, you know, following along and then eventually at certain points, verbally saying the prayers, saying the rituals, which everyone does, smelling the smells and all that, seeing all the iconography, immersed in a certain way in the ritual of it. And my mother did not believe in, uh, she believed in something called, that she would call private faith or a quiet faith, meaning coming to Mass or having your personal relationship um, with you know whatever God's greater things, mm-hmm. personal, differentiated from a kind of tribal belonging. Let's all go and think the same thing, and talk the same way, and belong in a group. That's the group that's going to heaven, and you're all screwed, mm-hmm. etc. So we're a bit better than you, and all that sort of thing. That tribalism, you know, it's a more of a personal sort of you could almost say mystic direct experience mm-hmm. approach that my mother had. So that's what she would tell us, and she wouldn't let us, for instance, go to the Sunday school. Well, the catechism, where they, where the young children go after the service to, you know, be instructed in the tenets of the faith and all that sort of thing, you know, being told this is what this is the stories of things. And the reason for that was she said that a little bit like what people say about politicians, she said that if anyone who wants to teach catechism probably shouldn't teach catechism. <laughs> so, you know, so she was very against that sort of indoctrination. So we she had. Didn't, she didn't mind you being an altar boy though. 
No, because that's just participation in a living ritual. You know, she, she we were there in the church, and yeah. and there's there's you have scriptural readings that there are liturgical things where you say, you know, the apostolic creed, and you know those yeah. of you who've been involved. And I know a lot of people got very negative association with religion and Christianity in particular. And that's why I don't bring it up very often because it's it doesn't seem very relevant to what what I'm doing. But that's where in the martial arts and fencing, mm. you know, and in in as an altar boy, that's where I first, in a sense, involved in ritual, involved mm. in those embodied participations in certain things. And in martial arts, you have, especially in karate, you've got the kata, mm. the prearranged forms, which is sort of a bit like a ritual too. I mean, the skill level is high enough. Um, and the stars line in a certain sense, the kata does you. You're not just you're not going through the motions thinking what's next. Your body just does it without very much self-referential behavior. And certainly in a good ritual, similarly, the ritual does you. You're not really thinking about taking the candle here and trying to look elegant or graceful or timing it right and so on. The ritual in a certain sense takes you. And I had some very profound experiences there experiences of sitting there in the quiet in between activity and having this huge spaciousness feelings and all that sort of thing but mercifully luckily without a lot of the dogma mm. and the tribalism that mm. so often obscures the opportunity for that kind of a contact um that's why it's so funny religion you know it's so much about this dogma and all this sort of thing it's a hard, one of the hardest, hardest places to find, shall we say, God or, you know, whatever, flow states or anything, you know. But without the dogma, yeah, these rituals can be tremendously powerful. So that's, that was part of that, you know. So, so tell me a little bit more about your, your, your mother, because someone who goes um, to a Catholic service all the time, but yet... Um, has this sort of secret or inner direct experience kind of kind of perspective around it that that's very interesting you know that's that's sort of a very intentional way to to approach going to church you know um i assume that she was you know uh, catholic in terms of her self-identifying kind of labely stuff that we give each other we give ourselves uh catholicism is interesting because there's quite a bit of leeway traditionally in Catholicism. It tip now. I'm not a Catholic scholar either, so I'm talking somewhat you know, off the cuff here. But from what I understand, South American Catholicism looks very different to Italian Catholicism, which looks very different to other places and so on. And, and just like anything, there are the more sort of extreme, uh, uh, should we say, fundamentalist sides, and there are the more kind of generalized sides and i think my mother would fall somewhat more there it's just an orientation i think an orientation towards a certain way of looking at life a certain way of tasting experience that's not catholic in its essence it's human it's more general generalized in that sense and i think can equally be found in you know, name your place you know on this on the surfboard um, at a music festival or, you know, in a mosque or a mm. Hindu temple or something like that. There's, I think that sort of window is available to everybody. So 
and it's certainly not just a church thing. That's just a a way. That's a, a sort of a. It's like going on a mini retreat once a week, kind of actually, um, with where the ritual and the repetitiveness and the familiarity of it yes. supports that kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my my fathers began going to church at the age of eighty two. Um, and obviously, you know, circumstances in his life are, are that lots of friends are reaching the the end the end of their physical days. Um, yeah. But to him, it's a it's a social thing. He he's he's now taken up the mantle. Of, he's taken the job of cutting the grass in the graveyard, and and he, mm-hmm. he sort of he goes there to kind of just hang out and be in this yeah. different sort of place where where there's a different kind of feeling. Um, mm. And and I and I ser- I I actually think that intellectually cognitively he actually goes into a shutdown mode because he doesn't mm. actually want to listen to any of the words um, yeah i think he just wants to feel the feels you know yeah um so what but the thing with um what's the word is it mono uh, monotheism monotheistic yeah uh, mm-hmm. religions is that is that they seem to put forward this notion that that god is other and yeah. Whereas direct mysticism slash Eastern philosophy seems to put forward the notion that I am God and you are God. Um, now, when you were a child, um, passing, moving a candle from one spot to another, who mm. who was God to you? Yeah. You know, there's some other relevant details which I could add, uh, biographical details, uh, which which is, and I think you're very right about that, there, there is, I would say, a mystical strand, and by mystical I just mean direct experience sort of idea, directly tasting in a certain sense, as opposed to the outward forms of religion and so on, um, of mysticism in all, well, at least possibly in all religions. The Muslims have the Sufis, everyone is classic thing to say, you know, and so on, and certainly in, in Catholicism or Christianity, which was, you know, uh, in Europe anyway, Catholicism for a long time. There were these mystics as well, you know, um, Therese of Avila, John of the Cross, uh, many others. And sometimes, you know, their views were a little bit unorthodox. And by that, I mean not quite the, the proper doctrine of the, of the church. And sometimes they got killed. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times they got killed, these kind of people, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how it goes, you know. Um, a lot of time, the mystical thing, and I think there's an uneasy, kind of be an uneasy relationship between the structure of religion and the possibility of direct experience because it's liberating, actually. If you don't need, it's a bit of a scarcity mentality in a certain sort of sense. If you don't need to go through the s- religious structure of the organizational thing, then... Uh, why would you come back? Of course, there are many, many good reasons. It's like someone saying, well, you know, uh, I don't want you to talk to anybody other than me because I'm afraid you'll leave me, you know, in a certain sense. It's, it's, it's a scarcity kind of thing. But uh, that's how it goes. And in fact, in my teens, I was apprenticed to a Christian mystic, and he was a general kind of Celtic Christianity kind of guy in my teens for, I say, three years or so. I worked with him very closely. He was an author who came to Shetland. Um, and I think probably listening to this so far, people might give the impression that I'm sort of Christian or something like that, which isn't—it is actually not the case at all. But that—I mean—that's biographically the mm-hmm. route I came, certainly. Um, and he had very interesting stuff too. You know, a lot of that stuff is about the heart, about compassion, about service, 
about also fellowship. They also talk a lot about fellowship, communing with God and so on. And in a certain sense, whether you call it God, you know, or you call it Atman, you know, or you call it uh, you know, your higher self, your true self, the no self, you know, the sort of endless potentiality of shunyata, that sort of idea. Whether you, however you sort of label it, I think that's a certain thing. So to say, who was God at that time? I think if I, I mean, if I cast my mind back, I think God, in a certain sense, was spaciousness. The space around things, in a certain sense. The color in the green leaf, that vivacity, I think, to me at that time, would be would have been God. That's why you see nature, you see, you could say God. Now, I don't tend to talk God, God, and all this sort of thing. It's a lens. It's a certain set of language that we can use, you know. But seeing as you're using it, that's what I'd say. The feeling of skin under your hand, you know, the thing that, the thing that the thing that is skin, you know, the the hue of skin, the touch of skin, the taste of skin, you know, with your lover or something like this. That's, I think, God. Now I was a little boy, so I didn't know about those sorts of things. Um, you know, uh, the the smell of the incense, the thing that makes the incense smell, like that. That that there's a certain something there, you know. So I think it would be that. It's a, it reminds me actually of a poem. I think it's Rumi where it says something like um, talking about God is the one that makes the cypress tree straight. You know, the one something along the lines of oh, I can't remember unfortunately now. What is the t- love dogs? That's no, not love dogs. It's um I can hear it in my mind. Never mind, it'll come to me, I'm sure. Coleman Barks, beautiful translations, Coleman Barks has of Rumi. Hmm. Uh, I'm sure it'll come to me. If you Google Cypress, Coleman Barks, maybe you'll find it. But there's this beautiful thing where it talks about it talks about that, and I wish I could quote it to you. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can Google it. No worries at all. Um, okay, so that's that's very interesting kind of mixture of stuff going into the early childhood pot there. Um, mm-hmm. Were you... What sort of exposure did you have to kind of like uh, more ma- mainstream Western stuff? Like were you going to school and kicking a football around and and like listening to like music on Radio 1 and stuff like that? Yeah, of course. I found this, uh, this poem. Would you like me to read it? Oh, too? yes, please. Okay, I found it. Yes, I was definitely kicking footballs around and... And sort of that sort of thing. It's it's very odd because um, I'm just letting it load here. It's very odd because the, as, when you're a child, I don't think you necessarily see things uh, with their impl- with their implications. And certainly, the way I experienced religion, if you want, um, or spirituality, or whatever you want to say, contemplation, contemplative stuff, was very much uh, free of. Um, it certainly didn't have very much tribalism involved, like I say. Well, now because you do this, these other things are also true about you. It seemed, luckily, somehow, maybe because I zoned out during those bits, but I don't think there was much of that. We had a very, you know, Jesuit priest who was very uh, contemplative-minded. Anyway, as I go on and on, Coleman Bark says, this is Rumi, what was said to the rose that made it open was said to me here in my chest. What was told to the cypress that made it strong and straight? What was whispered to the jasmine 
so it is what it is. Whatever made sugarcane sweet. Whatever was said to the inhabitants of the town of Chigil in Turkestan that makes them so handsome. Whatever lets the pomegranate flower blush like a human face. That's being said to me now. Whatever put eloquence in language. That's happening here. The great warehouse doors open. I feel with gratitude, chewing a piece of sugarcane, in love with the one to whom that belongs. It's a roomy uh, translation by Coleman Barks, and there's a wonderful live rendition of that on YouTube. You can find what was said to the rose with music behind it. Very nice. Yeah, so so, so this is sort of like essence or this what you said you said spaciousness before and you said the vivacity of a green leaf and and, and Rumi's poem is, is 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 very beautiful in terms of allowing an understanding or or yeah it's just so starkly different from the religious upbringing I had which was just like that is God and yeah. this is truth and all the rest is not God so therefore it's Satan and it's false, and um, yeah, like Rumi. Such a tragedy. Such a tragedy. Such a mind limiter, you know. And like, and so I think that's that's why I, I you know, you know, the, the force of the rebellion in me was so strong against the the, the the narrow-mindedness of it all. But it seems to me that you had early experiences of really, like, like you call it, direct experience of the, the mystic's direct experience is sort of like it's beyond open-minded it's like it's 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 like everything is god like it's coming at you from all angles if you see what i mean yeah the distinction is is becomes less relevant and i don't want to make out necessarily that these are lofty states Mm. uh i mean they they are wonderful in a way but i think it's the sort of thing that's available to anybody Mm -hmm. that's the that's the funny thing that it's so hard to find in the religious setting and it's true, by the way, if you're a Buddhist or, you know, whatever, I mean, there's all, because of course, a lot of, especially, you know, well, human nature is human nature. So there's, of course, the sort of direct strands and, you know, of mysticism and so on in, in Buddhism too, as well as the sort of hierarchical or uh, tribal sort of side of it, of course. But, you know, you're, you're as likely to find it on a surfboard or, in, like I said, or in nature, um, or looking at a baby, holding a baby. Mm. You know, I was, uh, we were just teaching it up in Esalen and there everyone eats in this, it's a, it's a retreat center sort of thing in California. And there everyone eats in the same big hall sort of lodge sort of thing. So everyone's there. And one of the other people who was teaching a workshop somewhere else in the thing was, had a, her seven month baby with her, seven month son. And the, we, we were talking and she had him. And then someone was sort of looking at me with great, you know, looking at my beard mainly with great sort of interest, you know. And uh, she, I ha- and he was, then he started reaching out. So she handed me this little seven-year-old, seven-month-old boy. And I held him like this in my arms. And he reached up and he grabbed, you know, <laughs> my beard like this. He grabs and starts pulling, looking at me, just, you know. And I stood there and really my whole body from the top to the bottom just arrested by the sheer, I mean, beauty. Uh, uh, it's indescribable, really. And I'm, 
anyone know any most people will know that feeling even if you don't like children or something there's something sometimes they can get you in a certain way you know the heart opens you could say whatever and it was just so wonderful and i was just suspended and it with this little kid as he was grabbing my beard and pulling my beard you know and there's not that many people i let do that <laughs> grab my beard and pull my beard you know? yeah it's sort a of funny thing but you know it's just so wonderful and then then i gave gave him back after a while and went down and started eating and so on and i was just sort of totally blissed out totally blissed out you know that's a rarefied state that's a, a that's a, a transcendent state in a certain sense you could call it what it is but it's so natural it's so everyday so i think these sorts of things are this is why i would talk about empowering people freedom that sort of thing they're so available to all of us totally. in many many different circumstances and in fact in the most mundane circumstances it can often be the clearest i was washing the dishes uh, a couple of nights ago and you know, I I know this is a very Zen thing, and 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 that that amazing Vietnamese monk uh, Thich Nhat Hanh always talks about this. Um, but the washing of the dishes, uh, I just, it was. It, I, I must admit, usually I'm a very frantic dishwasher, and I have been accused in the past by um, multiple parties of uh, not doing a very thorough job. Um, particularly my wife, who almost doesn't let me wash dishes. Not that that's part of my strategy. That's a good oh, strategy. Yes, I yeah. know. <laughs> but in this particular instance, I, 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 you know, I became aware of of my breath just as I was um, about to plunge into a frenzy, and and it was just this pause, this sort of pause. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this properly, you know. And you know, when you actually decide to fill up the the sink and actually do it properly, and like, and like yeah. clear space to like put the plates there and and actually make it into a ritual and and the the whole thing was was really immersive and 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 I was in a very 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 pleasant state of consciousness so much so mm-hmm. that I wanted to stick around for the drying of the plates and I and I chose to dry each knife individually and put it back silently in its place and and mm. you're right the, the splendor in the mundane um it's it's a it's a very everyday, everyday practice this um which is why I started flow state because I was like well mm surfing i'm in this particular state of mind and and in deep meditation i'm in this particular thing and then when i hold a baby there's this thing going on and then when i'm on the top of a mountain there's this thing going on I'm like what what's what's going on how are these things all yeah. connected you know yeah um exactly so what what's what's let, let's go a little bit into philosophizing around the, the human condition if 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 you if you join me in that place um okay because you know life seems to be <clears throat> increasingly complex in a sense like i'm sure that humans forever have have, have faced distractions and and like um difficulties and challenges and things like that but there seems to be a you know you know we're living in 2017 and we, you you and i both have clients who are kind of like ceos and successful entrepreneurs and and things like that um mm. now w- how would you sort of talk about the 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 world that we're living in right now, the human condition and, and the application of um, this this sort of simple, humble um, t- type of presence or interaction with, you know, the the vivacity of a green leaf or what Rumi was talking about. Mm-hmm. With those sorts of clients, you mean? Yeah, with with the with the with the person who's feeling very flustered and 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 sort of like overwhelmed by the complexity of life. Yeah. Well, usually I would say those sorts of people, those sorts of clients you're talking about, 
they come for a very specific thing. Often it's for help in the area of relationships, either sourcing them or managing them. Often it's in the, in, in the areas of embodiment and, and, and so on. So this has to be very, very specific. And in that, you know, that intimacy that I was talking about before, that being able to tune into the raw sensory data is very important in for, for a successful, uh, busy sort of person who's making a lot of decisions um, because, or a high-profile actor, or very successful touring musician. These are some of the other people I work with, a lot of people in the arts. And being able to, in a certain sense, learn how to see something clearer anyway, how to be able to see as well as your own assumptions, thin slices, uh, projections, which are all very valuable. They're based, for the most part, on previous experience, so you can't discard them entirely, you know, um, of course. But also being able to, should we say, fertilize that system with an ability to tune into actually what's going on so important you know to be able to say okay here's some somewhat my reaction to the situation let's now also try and see what is the real situation here how are things as they are you know as unvarnished as possible it's very useful to have to have that skill and i think that's also the road to god <laughs> funnily enough but you know uh, but people that you know those sorts of people don't tend to come uh, unless they do come to me for that, generally they're not coming. They say, okay, because like I say, I don't talk about this sort of mystical uh, stuff very often. And you know, from of course, the workshop is a bit more practical than that in a certain sense. But I think the very same things that make you effective or that some of the very same things that can improve your performance in business, um, your performance, say, as an athlete or as a creative individual, including all of the necessary uh, components of self-care and so on. So those those very same things are really the road to God because God is in those places. You know, God is, and I and I, I hesitate to say God, but we mentioned it from the Christian thing. Mm -hmm. It's a sort of vernacular in a certain sense. God is there in the business. God is there on the beach. God's there in your bench press, and so on. I mean, that's it. You know, God's there with your ch your child, with your partner, or partners. You know. Mm -hmm. That's God. That's God there, you know, in a certain sense. So when you press your lips against those things, you know, that's that to me is deep has the potential anyway uh, to be a deep contemplative practice. So in a certain sense, it's laying seeds that are useful for the objectives practically that people want to achieve, but also have their potential if they're so inclined, if they're you know, if they're interested to open them to those sorts of perspectives. Mm, beautiful. But, it's it's like the, uh, you're, it was reminded me of the, the the Alan Watts quote where he talks about the the, the treadmill. You know, it's all wretch and no vomit, and um, people going somewhere to get somewhere. But actually, it's not the getting somewhere. What you're saying is that it's always there whilst you're doing your bench press. It's it, it's it's there. So what's what's what what's sort of required to to come off that treadmill? Or, or to to actually do the vomit in Alan's ter terms. What's required to come off the treadmill and do and do the vomit? But that the 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 wretch and vomit quote from Alan Watts, I think, is something to do with the idea of happiness being in the future. Isn't that right? 
and then we go to school and we graduate school and then we go to our graduate school and then we get the job and the and so on and so forth. Uh, and it's, I mean, those things are very important. I think those things are very important. But in the midst of it all, uh, as it goes on, there is the possibility to taste, to taste that. Mm. And I think really mainly what it requires, just like any any relationship, is an interest, a turning towards, you know. Um, an intimacy? Well, I suppose so. I suppose so. You know, my father, to if we're going, you know, going all biographical, he, um, on one occasion, we were talking, and he said to me um, something like, I wish I could remember exactly what he said to me. We're talking about something like that. He said something like, you know, meditation, it's easy. You don't need to learn to meditate. It's, it's like so silly or ridiculous or something like that. And I said to him, well, what do you mean? And he explained to me, he used to be in the Merchant Navy in the 70s. He was the second officer there. And so on these big, big super tankers out in the ocean. And they do night watches where there'd be one man on watch. That means you're standing on the bridge, like the, the, near the steering wheel, I guess. You know, <laughs> I don't think they have steering wheels. Maybe they do. I don't know. Anyway, I've been on a super tanker. But um, on the ocean. And you're there for your shift, and all the lights are out except for little lights, consoles, and so on. You know, and the boat's moving. And he describes me a sort of experience that he would often have hours at a time. And this was, by the way, him in a certain sense refuting meditation, funnily enough, in conversation. Uh, and he was standing on the boat, and he said he would be able to, in a certain sense, he would disappear. And be able to feel all the way through the whole boat in a certain sense. It's like the boat and him became one in a way. And then he feel even deeper and wider. And I think this was a spontaneous sort of thing. He wasn't a sort of a, a directed feeling technique. And then the ocean and everything like that. And there would just then be the activity of the boat on the ocean, activity of the whole thing going on in a certain sense. Subject object collapse, I think, and this activity happened, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I said to him, that is meditation. <laughs> you know, that's a perfectly legitimate, perfectly legitimate, you know. It's so awful because so, so many of these forms, these forms, well, what do I need to do to get off this and get to there and so on and so forth. That's the, it's, it's almost an obstacle in a certain way. It's this, ter- it's this terrible paradox, you know. Well, you know what you need to do? Meditate, you know. You need to meditate and then you'll be closer to God. So you sit down to meditate, you know, and you think, well, when I get good enough at meditation, I'll be closer to God. Meanwhile... You know, the tree is, the, the leaf is green, you know, the, the, your body is breathing. So it's this tremendous and I think quite cosmic joke in a way, this paradox. So often the form can interfere um, in a certain sense. So I think it's nice to hold it, hold these forms somewhat loosely. So I don't know, someone who's very busy and so on, it would depend on their situation. Some people's lives are very busy justifiably. They have awfully difficult, challenging circumstances. They can't really take much of a break. They can't do that. They haven't got the money. They've got too many responsibilities. Not everyone has the luxury to stop you know, and uh, alter things in a certain sense. But I think uh, an orientation towards tasting the thing of the thing, whether that thing is deep fatigue one of the things I like to do, because I travel so much uh, all the time, we're traveling most of the year. I have a lot of, you know, jet lag sometimes, or just fatigue in general. Mm-hmm. So sometimes one of the things I like to do is I sit there 
you know, quietly to myself and I try and I relax and so on. And I feel, of course, fatigue. And usually with fatigue, it can be all sorts of feelings. Sometimes there could be a yawning feeling, a desire to yawn. And this is probably going to start yawning now. I'm just talking about this. There's a desire to yawn. Yeah, exactly. And that desire to yawn is kind of like, it's a sort of um, urge to yawn, right? So sometimes I, I'll sit there and I'll relax my face, jaw, tongue, throat, and just be relaxed. And the urge to yawn will arise. And rather than yawn, I mean, there's nothing wrong with yawning, but as an experiment, rather than yawn, I just don't activate the muscles required to yawn and relax. Relax the jaw, the face, the forehead, the scalp, everything like that. And then quite often, the feeling of the yawn, that sort of pre-yawn concoction of sensations can it begins to undulate perhaps it can deepen it can expand washing back over the head into the body it can just sort of go away sometimes we're yawning just because we're bored actually oftentimes we do all sorts of things like scratching and stuff because actually we're just sort of bored in a way self-referencing behavior but it can be very interesting with that yawn or that feeling behind the eyes it's almost a kind of hopeless despair sometimes. Fatigue, when you tune in, sometimes it can be this almost hopeless despair feeling of just like, oh, you know, more is required. And to, to let that, rather than attempting to cramp it, to allow it to relax the edges, allow it to spread, mm. or in the chest, that feeling of temper tantrum. I'm describing some of my fatigue reactions, by the way, my subtle fatigue reactions. Some sense here in the subtle plexus of temper tantrum, you know, like not wanting to feel tired or something like that, feeling trapped, maybe something like this. So rather than doing something about that uh, necessarily, it can be an interesting window to sit and allow that to spread. Often for me, it goes across my chest, down my arms, sometimes into my legs, you know. Mm. And you could have a sort of a yawngasm in a certain sense. Mm. You know, you don't pull the trigger on the yawn. Perhaps you can see the parallels. Instead, relax. And if you can simmer in the pre-yawn cocktail, if you're able to simmer in that, it, it'll, it'll break you up. Mm. It'll, an Alka-Sets in a sense, sense can wash. So I think that's a tremendous thing to try if you're a very busy person who, who can't, you know, I don't know, go to, go to some place to learn to meditate, you know, do some sort of thing like that or whatever, a spa or something. Is to, you can possibly work with those fatigue flavors. Interesting. So it's like, um, yeah, I guess like um, a, a new sense of awareness of, of what's actually going on you know, um, in the body, becoming more intimate with, 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 what, with what it actually feels like. Um, yeah, which is, I guess, mindfulness of, of, of sensory awareness, I guess. Um, what, what, is it, uh, the yawning is an interesting thing. I was, I've been working with this guy called Dan Brule, who's a, who's a breath, um, teacher um, and he when you sit with him you'll when you when you've only just met him you'll be kind of like put into a state of like curious not not quite shock but just curiosity because when he yawns he yawns like a lion yawning and then his he blend his yawn will blend into a sigh and like a minute later you're watching this guy and he's just like just still going for it, man. and it's mm. like lost, like full release. And 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 his and his um, way of looking at yawning is 
Uh, he says, when, when nature yawns me, I yawn nature back. So he's like, this is a natural response, this yawn. Um, mm. so I'm going to like double down on, on nature almost. Yeah. Like, you see what I'm saying? And so that's tremendous. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a that's, really... that's another tremendous option yeah. is if, if, you know, it's to sit and yawn and go for it. Mm. No, absolutely. And to try to, in a certain sense, and again, the parallels with orgasm, I think are somewhat perhaps evident mm. is to, in a certain sense, uh, Ride it all the way, you know, ride it all the way, opening, turning towards, mm. turning towards it. And it doesn't matter whether you yawn or you don't yawn. You can still turn towards that cocktail of sensations. Mm. That sounds great. Can I ask you about your, the, the rituals or routines that you, that you have in your current life? You know, we've learned a little bit about your childhood and early exposure to, to ritual and the, the power of ritual. Um, yeah. Yeah. What do What do some of your practices look like? Per, you're talking about sort of personal yeah, exploration. Do you, yeah. Do Do you have like a, for example, just a very straight question? But do you have a morning routine or a daily routine? Um. Well, when I'm tra- when I'm traveling, it ex- it can ex- it it can it has to be flexible, certainly. When I'm home on the boat, I live on a barge in the UK. When I'm home on the boat, then yes, routines and habits and so on governed mainly by interest. And I'm a, I'm a sort of quite, I do enjoy routine and I do enjoy ritual, which is funny because traveling so much, you don't get much of it. Um, uh, so I find, you know, with these sorts of things, and I'll give you some details, but I find with these sorts of things, they expand and contract. There has to be a degree of flexibility there. M- meditation as an example. You start meditating five minutes or something like that. And generally it's considered that meditating more is better than meditating less for whatever reason. Generally that's considered, you know. So maybe you, you, you start at five minutes and you build it up to maybe half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour maybe, something like that. And sometimes people then, then schedule squeezes them, life squeezes them. And they, and it's not as easy to find that hour anymore. And some people, they feel, well, I've built up to an hour. If I go back to 20 minutes or if I go back to 10 minutes because of the circumstantial you know, obstacle, then I'm going backwards in my practice or something like that. But actually, you know, to have a through line is, I think, more important, like the waves crashing on the rocks, shaping the rocks again and again and again and again. I think that's more important than... Things like duration, besides some people just shouldn't meditate that much anyway, you know, I think uh, people have different temperaments and so on, as an, as, as an example of meditation. And so practice needs to be able to expand and contract, just like breathing. You breathe in, you have the interest, you have the opportunity, you do a lot. And then you exhale, as a metaphor. The interest dips, which it does. The opportunity shrinks. So your practice has to be able to shrink has to be flexible in a certain way. And that's why I think people with very, very successful morning routines tend to have short ones <laughs> because it's more immune to the changing circumstances of life. You know? So things that I try to do every day, um, well, I do uh, meditate and that can, that can vary, the time length and so on. Um, I do move most days some sort of moving 
Mm-hmm. And I don't, I, and I don't mean just getting out of bed and going to, going to the bathroom or something. I mean, I mean some sort of movement. So I have this whole way of moving, movement koan uh, method, I call it, which you know you we did with together. All sorts of strange, kind of easy ways of moving that are a little bit interesting and stimulating to the mind and the nervous system and so on. Um, so I have you know DVDs about that and everything. So I do that quite often. It's very easy. You can do it in five minutes. You can do it in ten minutes. Do it in half an hour. You know, you know I train. You know, I do strength training and things of that nature. I'm studying all the time. Uh, right now, I'm studying Tibetan, writing and, re- and reading and speaking, uh, studying Tibetan, and I'm always interested in studying religions and philosophies and things like that. So that, I would say, is something of a practice in a certain way because, to me, wisdom – well, let's put it this way – a bodybuilder or someone who wants to be strong – Funnily enough, when they go to the gym, they have to become experts in weakness to be strong. So if you want to produce an adaptation in your muscle, you know, to make it grow or become stronger, then you need to go towards the realms of weakness. In other words, your last repetitions and so on, you're going to feel weak. Actually, it's it's counterintuitive in a certain sense to feel to get stronger. You have to to have to induce weakness. Absolutely, you do. And really, people who are expert strength trainers or you know, people who, are, who know their bodies well in that kind of a way, they become connoisseurs of weakness. Not, not too much, not too little. They, become, they learn to sort of simmer like a sausage in a pan in weakness, even though their objective is strength, say, or, or muscular growth, say. And the same thing with wisdom and knowledge. I think if you want knowledge, uh, if you want to grow in those ways, you have to be really immersed in ignorance. If you stay within your area of competency, then your knowledge atrophies and and generally becomes stale and outdated. So if you want to have a living kind of connection, living knowledge, then you have to be comfortable. And let me tell you something, trying to learn to read and write Tibetan, you, you one has to become, you know, <laughs> lesson one, you know, I felt not quite panic, but not quite despair, but a very dialed back version of that because it's just so hard and my brain has to make new connections, you know, and that's a stress response. It's a stress. So I felt that, but I've come to understand, you know, a little bit like on Age of Empires, the computer game. Did you ever play Age of Empires, the computer game? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have this thing called the fog of war. Now I'm going to lose 90% of the listeners here. They have the fog, of, well, at least those who are still left, the fog of war where you start off with your little town and you can't see anything. It's all dark and you have to go out and explore in order to reveal the map you know, and see what's going on because it's all black. And then when you go out, the black kind of recedes and so on, you know, and I think it's a little bit like that neuromuscularly or cognitively. I mean, when I, when I hit upon those areas of, should we say, neuromuscular confusion or dark spots where I'm detecting that, so people often run from that. But I like it because I say, ah, here's an area where if I sink a certain degree of, um, you have to surrender to it in a way. But if, I, if I'm willing to simmer in this, there is some expansion to be had here, or there's some deepening to be had here. But in order to do that in the area of knowledge and wisdom, you have to be willing to go into ignorance, which undermines your previous knowledge. Or wisdom, you have to go into confusion, which undermines your previous position, because when you have wisdom, you know what's going on. When you're in confusion, you don't know what's going on. Some of the things you used to think were true are not true anymore with this new data. You know, And I think some, sometimes, you know, so that to me is a sort of a practice, actually, and that's how, how I work with my body in these sort of looking for neuromuscular areas of confusion and so on, and just enjoying actually. It's not necessarily a growth modality. Um, with my mind, studying, meditation, and so on, 
Mm. These sorts of things. So those are among my daily kind of or frequent practices, I would say. So when you were talking about um, going to, to gain wisdom, we must go into confusion. Um, yeah. That there's a there's a framework which some people call the, the flow cycle, and it's basically this four stage cycle where you have um, and flow is just like that gets the glory. But um, after you've experienced flow, what what apparently happens is we um, we integrate it. Um, and then we go into sort of a, a phase of struggle again. Um, and then to come out of the struggle phase, we have to kind of like surrender or take a separation, a break from whatever it is we're doing. Right? Mm. And then we come back to it and then we experience flow again. And then we go into this, into this cycle again. Um, and another flow state framework is, is like this idea of challenge and skill, like constantly having like as, as your skill level goes up, your challenge level must go up. Um, otherwise you'll go into apathy um, but if the challenge level goes up too much you'll go into overwhelm um, mm. so h- how is it that in your practice that you kind of I guess turn up the the, the 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 challenge levels you know because because doing I did some of these movements to you and 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 yes they confused my brain um, but, for yeah. you, but for you you've been doing them for years so are you constantly looking for new ways to confuse your brain no not really um it's curiosity. Yeah. I think the driving, the driver is curiosity and interest. It's not growth. See, I have this ah. a little bit different there. I'm not, the idea of growth doesn't in itself drive me. It's a certain sense of curiosity, mm. a certain interest, mm-hmm. also a certain a, a, a compulsion of service mm. or, or maybe driver of service, um, of giving. There's something also very, refreshing about giving mm. because when you give you have to let go you know whether mm-hmm. it's wh- whatever it might be so for me it's sort of this interest affair of curiosity of interest of captivate being captivated in a certain sense so growth happens in in the midst of that naturally just in the same way for instance you know when you if you play good music say guitar to a high let's say you play guitar you know i was actually a musician for a little while uh, for, I worked in that field for a little bit. And when I first started playing guitar, I didn't do it because I wanted to be a guitar player or something, you know. I had this career goal in mind. I just loved it so much, loved it so much, that I just did it all the time. And as a consequence, I got better and better and better and so on. And eventually, of course, that love affair becomes married with discipline and becomes, you know, which is a certain sense, I love the guitar so much that I'm going to play this thing now in my practice that I don't really like because of I can see a month or two months down the line. It's discipline, I think, has the sense of a delayed gratification or a sense of mm. uh, a sense of enjoyment over time or a love affair over time, as opposed to just I love guitar so much, leave me alone, let me not do my homework and play that sort of thing. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So there's all these sorts of things. So I think that sort of a paradigm has more to do with say how I approach meditation personally. I approach meditation, or which can be sitting on the cushion, or it can be just, as you say, doing the dishes, or just looking in nature, or something like this. I think these are all very valid kind of ways of meditating. Meditating in movement, it's that touching what's happening to me. That's in certain sense, and that's driven by interest, curiosity, enjoyment. Almost, one's almost drawn mm. to it. Almost drawn to it as one's invited by 
a particularly mm. uh, tempting, uh, you know, member of the uh, of your preferred sex, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. You know, there's a certain, you know, it's like you're drawn to it in a way. So in that sense, I, I've learned to trust my interest and I've learned to cultivate my interest and not dampen my interest with too much requirement for structure. Yes. But I support my interest with the right amount of structure, with the right amount of dedication. So you do meditate. I do meditate when I don't want to and all that sort of thing. Uh, and why are you learning Tibetan? Can I understand your, your motivation? There? Oh, yeah. There's three reasons. I use this as an example of uh, because to me, it's, I value it as an important thing. That sort of a pursuit I value as an important thing. You know, mental learning for myself. It's like exercise for me in a way. The three reasons I'm learning Tibetan, yes. First, the first one is to, um, because I'm back to it again, I'm interested in it. I like the sound of it. I like the way it looks. I think it's a very beautiful language, uh, written. And also when you get into it, just every language has a certain structure to it. And when you learn a way of language, you learn a different way of thinking, a different way of looking at the world. This is the second reason. You learn a different way of looking at the world because um, the way you describe the world, the language you use internally or, or whatever, has an awful, awfully strong effect on how you actually filter and perceive things, you know, how you describe it in a certain sense. You, you, you could say very often we're interacting with nothing more than our labels, nothing more than our descriptions. But anyway, so there's some really interesting grammatical um, uh, quirks to Tibetan as well, which I just find very fun. So it's also to open that in that sense. And the third reason is to, in a certain way, bypass the need, the language barrier. Because as your listeners may not know, actually, of course, Buddhism began in India. Uh, And spread in all sorts of different places for instance it went through china and japan and there's zen there are other kinds of buddhism there too there's all different kinds of buddhism by the way and certainly there and you have the sort of burmese vipassana kind of thing you know down there in burma and places like that so there's different sorts of buddhism depending on when it left india different because buddhism evolved in india you, ha- you, you can get sort of like time capsules of in of, of burmese is sort of quite early buddhism in a sense you, you could say um, the, the Zen thing is Mahayana, the second, vehicle, the, the greater vehicle, a later development or iteration of Buddhism, you know. And when Buddhism went to Tibet, it it was one of the latest migrations of Buddhism from India. In fact, there was a whole intention. The Tibetans, the the people in charge there, were very interested in having to Buddhism go there, and so they they went back and forth between India. And and Tibet, Tibetans would come to India, very great Indian pundits and scholars would go to Tibet. And I'm sure you, you know this, but not, perhaps not everyone knows this. And there's this tremendous sort of moving of Buddhism in its very, very late form, in India anyway, to Tibet. And the Tibetan written language was invented so as to write down the Buddhist texts. That's why they came up with it. They, that's why they wrote it. They didn't have a written language before that. Um, or at least not in that form. So it's very, very fascinating. So what you have there, and then uh, then times changed in India, Muslim invasions and other sorts of things coming in through the north of India, and the monastic colleges in India wiped out. And for many, for a long, long time, there was really basically no Buddhism in India at all. It's birthplace, actually. And so, But in Tibet, 
in that kingdom, protected by the Himalayas and mountains and its altitude, it was preserved, actually, and in fact, even developed, you might say, and certainly very Tibetanized in many ways. So they have there a tremendous treasure trove. And there is a tremendous treasure trove of poetry, literature, philosophical, spiritual, I mean, you name it, uh, material in written in Tibetan. And there are people, of course, who are very fascinated by it and translated and all that sort of thing. But there's something about getting it in the original language. And if you want to be a biblical scholar, for instance, you must learn Greek. You know, you must learn you know, Hebrew. Mm. It's, it's a requirement, really. Yeah. And if you, if, you want, if you really want to sort of get a taste of it, so much can be lost in translation, especially when the Tibetan situation is as it is now. They, they've come out of the refugees out of Tibet, and they have two goals in a certain sense. First, one goal is, is to uh, preserve the culture of Tibet, you know, t- which is, and the language and so on, which is in great danger of, of course, being threatened out of its context of being in Tibet. But also, of course, they, they have this terrible, tremendous treasure trove of Dharma, of uh, the, the reflections and so on of, of these things, preserved. It's really amazing, as well as a living lineage of practitioners, unbroken. Mm. So it's not just almost like reading dead texts. There are people there that learned it from the guy who knew a guy, who knew a guy, who knew a guy, who knew a guy, who knew a guy who wrote the thing. You know, that mm. living lineage has been preserved there as well, which is also extremely rare. Many of the living lineages of mysticism in the West, Christian lineages, are dead. They're dead. You can read, you can read Saint Teresa of Avila, Saint John of the Cross, but to find a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew that person, it's not so going to happen. Mm. Uh, they say it's underground, or who knows? But it's it's less sort of accessible in a way. So it's actually to be able to speak to these people in their own language, to read the text in its language, to understand it in that sort of a way. So. That, that's the third reason mm. for that in Tibetan. It's such a ta- this has been a very interesting interview, Jiro, because conversation, because we're talking about the most unusual and strange things. I love it. I love <laughs> so, it. So how did you flip? How did you choose between learning Sanskrit and learning Tibetan? Um, there were a couple of considerations. One of them uh, is it's it's sort of still a live mm. language in a certain sense. Yeah. Yeah, practical application. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's Sanskrit. I know I have bits and pieces of it, but a good friend of mine, Lauren Roche, who um, translated the Radiant Sutras, which is the uh, Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, uh, Kashmir Shaivism root text. um, I mean, he's a he's a Sanskrit scholar, and he really, if you you know, he really gets it uh, on many levels. And so I, I love to kind of bathe in his. Mm-hmm. It's it's a relationship. You form a relationship with a language in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. It's not just a utility thing. It, it 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 gets into you. It does things to you. So mm-hmm. why I did it mainly is because well, there are it's a spoke it's a, a more widely spoken language in a certain sense, and I'm interested in that specific set of material more than I'm interested say at this point. And it was a difficult mm-hmm. choice. More than I'm interested say in in uh, the, the sort of material that's that's mm. in Sanskrit, so, you know, that sort of thing. But, I mean, I think eventually I'm go- I'll get them both. I'd like to. Mm, interesting. What, what, does, what do you see yourself, like I can see you come alive when you talk about learning stuff. Um, so it's obviously a, you, you talked about how you're not, growth doesn't 
it's more like learning and curiosity which is which is interesting yeah discovery because for many people like if you say what's the point of your existence they'd say something like to grow or to keep growing that's Um, the cancer approach yes (laughs) i model myself on cancer i just grow 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 regardless of whether i want it or not yeah Yeah, i'm just i'm just teasing there i'm sorry go ahead but what's what 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 else is in your future like or, or is it just kind of emergent but what, what do you see yourself tinkering with and, and learning you know in, in your in your later years in your 50s 60s 70s and beyond oh my gosh <laughs> I, you know, one thing uh one thing i've noticed is that it's very hard to predict yes <laughs> so i would not have guessed i mean you know when you look back you can trace a line well, this happened and this happened, which led to this, which prepared me for that. And, and so there's, there's a sort of, you can look back and see a road to where you got to. But uh, it certainly was not a linear path for me. And the things that I'm interested in, um, and, the, and what, you know, the, one of the things, the things about discovery and learning is that when you get there, it looks so different from what you thought it would look like. Mm. You know, when you learn, it, it can be as simple, simple as a skill, physical skill, or, or, getting inside a philosophical system, understanding something like that, it could be so different to what you thought it was going to be. Well, inevitably will be, of course, mm. different, uh, inevitably. And that changes everything. When, you're, when, you're at the, you know, when you learn that, it changes every, literally everything in a sense. So it's very subtly because learning, unless it, in most cases, is gradual. It informs you in a way that changes everything, maybe very, very subtly. You know, mm. And over time, you integrate as you learn. You're integrating, and you see the world differently. And so, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to um, continue to be of greater service. The reason I like service is because serving a person. Providing, in a sense, an influence that empowers them, gives them autonomy, gives them freedom. And that you can do that with good information. You can do it, in fact, by relating to somebody mm-hmm. with a certain degree of trust and belief. I think that's one of my main jobs, actually, is to believe in people and to trust their intelligence. People don't trust their intelligence, of course. And that can be a tremendously liberating thing to have someone regard you in that way. But then, you know, that's real bang for your buck because the degree to which you can positively influence this sort of person well then they are better in all their interactions they're better off themselves everywhere they go everywhere they meet it's better off as a consequence so i'd like to in a certain sense uh, increase the leverage of service Mm. um yeah and as for the discoveries i don't know i mean most of the things i learn make no sense at all when i learn them there's no reason and then they become extremely important two years time or something like that that's, that's happened right. to me quite a lot that's right can i can i ask you a quick question around prioritization and and sort of yeah um what i observe in myself and also clients is is that one of the one of the most challenging things in life um is that we have access to almost anything these days in terms of yeah. learning um or information and we also have uh, competing priorities in life and, and almost it seems like such a great skill to be able to prioritize what one's going to prioritize spending their, their time on. It's almost like a meta prioritization. Like, do you have any mm. process to, uh, to help you choose whether studying Tibetan or calling your mother or um, doing your yeah. taxes is, is, is the best thing to do? 
Um, yes, I do. I, I, I would imagine a degree of it is unconscious. Um, so I would say some things I found useful would be, well, you know, I talked about that idea of maintaining a through line. Mm. Uh, the practice, whatever it is, increases, decreases the available time you can dedicate towards an interest or even actually how interested you are in it. Sometimes you sort of go off it for a bit, you know, could be the case. So I find one of the key things is that if I can keep that through line and then I find that in a certain sense, time compounds my efforts. So if I'm able to put a little bit of effort in on a regular basis, then this it's, you almost get bonus. Um, you'd think uh, a month of, of 10 minutes of whatever, you know, meditation something would add would be an additive thing that by the end of the month you've done let's say 30 days so what 300 minutes or something i don't know 300 minutes of meditation but there's something about consistency that that seems to make it 350 minutes or something mm -hmm. there's something about that so i've i've found to work with my nature not to be over ambitious to establish in a certain sense a realistic through line and then very humbly attempt to maintain it and that means coming face to face with your resistance quite a lot of the time actually um so and a good example of that is for instance with uh, tibetan as an example things you're talking about that mm. every week i have a call with a my tibetan teacher sonam chusang from learntibetan.net and um we talk you know we have a class right and with my uh, colleague in the class, another fellow student, David Priest, we, we talk. And we do have a class. So every week, basically, I'm doing it. You know, That's important. That helps. So all I have to do sometimes is just show up. And, and that, that helps keep it alive. If it was entirely up to me to sort of read it every day and sort of thing without any of those sort, sort of things, I'd probably, it'd probably slip by the wayside. You know? But then, you know, and then it depends on the skill. But, uh, but just to find... A through line is the most important thing, I think. And then time seems to compound those efforts mm. um, and being realistic. And certain things are, what is it, the David Allen thing, um, urgent and important. You do those things first. Uh, important but not urgent. You do. Mm. I think you're supposed to do them second. I can't remember. He's got this quadrant thing. Uh, not uh, Urgent but not important. Right? Mm. That, that we off, a lot of our time is taken up with urgent, not important things, you know. So it needs to be done, but it doesn't really matter. And then the other thing I think is not urgent and not important, and that's the sort of another quadrant. Yes. So I'd say urgent, important things. Do those first. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Yeah. That's, that's just Dave thought. Allen is uh, the for anyone listening is the author of a of a kind of like a almost like a cult or a best selling kind of productivity book that contains mm. quite a, quite a few uh, practical pearls. Um, but, you know, yes, and I may have—I want to say—I may have terribly butchered his. That's all his right. System, you know, but it's something like that, anyway. And the thing about learning anything and, and learning in general is that fundamentally, as Bruce Lee said, all knowledge is self-knowledge. Mm. You know, and that's that's a big part of any learning process. You can learn to surf, you can learn to speak Swahili or whatever it is, and in the process, you you're going to have to learn about yourself you're going to have to work fundamentally with yourself and that part is independent i think of the particular learning trajectory you're on whether it's a language or it's a meditation or it's a sport or it's a it's a business skill or something like that fundamentally there's a certain sense in which 
it's a self-inquiry and that's universal i think to all learning mm, beautiful beautiful way to end this all knowledge is self-knowledge um yeah. thank you so much for um sharing and dialoguing with me and going down rabbit holes some uh, real rabbit holes this time Jira. yeah 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 it's, all, it's always <laughs> fun great. um yeah thank you so much um so to find more about your work um correct me if i'm wrong but it's guruviking.com yeah excellent guruviking.com yeah and um you're traveling around the world um running retreats and um people can find out about all that stuff on your website i imagine yeah we're uh by we i mean myself and michaela bohem like uh, my teaching partner i teach with her most of the time yeah we're in australia twice a year we're in europe sort of four times a year or so we just sort of big sets of events and then we're in america in between canada and so on in between um all that stuff's on guruviking.com we've got study groups coming up where people go on nine months with us on this whole journey we have teacher trainings mm. we've got five-day intensives for men and women we've got men's things in australia we have two a five-day women's thing and a five called wild women's way and a five-day men's thing called man on band that run next to each other mm. you know not physically not literally next to each other you know <laughs> but uh, in and, and the what? same place and obviously, and you're you're running the man's one and not the woman's yeah. one. So, so what what can a man expect? Sometimes we switch. <laughs> Do you really? <laughs> sometimes we, yeah, occasionally, yeah. And sometimes we we get they get together. Okay. We do all sorts of crazy things. So, so what what can a what, what can a man um, expect from you know signing up to that particular experience? Complete uh, enlightenment and fulfillment of his potential. Excellent. No, I'm in. Yes. Take my money. There we go. So, well. <laughs> Um, you know, the, what do we do in Man on Bound? Well, we do all sorts of stuff, you know. Yeah. We do um, a lot of the things we talked about today. We do do some meditation, actually. We do quite a bit of movement, yeah. uh, movement things. We do, there's lectures involved. We cover things like sexuality. We cover things like the embodiment. Uh, it's somewhat tailored to the men that come, and there's a lot of t space for customization. But those are some of the key themes. Mm. And not in a pushing way, but in a kind of uncovering sort of a way. It's very cool. And when the guys come out of that, they'll have the ability to. Uh, they'll have they they'll have sequences of movement that they will be able to do. In fact, in Madame Bound, part of it is they, at the very end, near the very end, they have to teach each other certain things that they've learned and so ah. on. So they'll come out with a whole sequence, a whole way of moving, which which unless they've worked with them before, they won't have learned before, with various different cognitive associations there. They have a they have a couple of ways of meditating. So actually, they they get a foothold um, in terms of sexuality. There are other things too. They'll have a foothold, a, a beachhead, if you want, in an area of interest that they can then use to strike out. You know, mm -hmm. they don't need to necessarily keep coming back, coming back, coming back. They often do, but they don't need to keep coming back because what they learn there, they can take away, and if they want to, they can use it and continue to unpack it. Beautiful. So that, that sort of thing. Excellent. Yeah. Um, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoy the, the, the rest of your evening over there in Ojai and California. And um, yeah, let's, let's get you back on the show at some point in the future to jump down some more rabbit holes. Um, I'd love that. Excellent. All right, Steve. Well, all the best. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Gilla, for having me. 
Well, thank you for sticking around on that conversation. We went down some rabbit holes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was a, it was. I love those sorts of conversations. Um, I hope you do too. But we departed from any kind of script or anything like that, or pre-canned questions, and just kind of like went where the flow took us. And I had no idea we we're going to be talking about uh, learning Tibetan and um, building rituals and 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 some of the stuff that we went into there. But some of the things that we talked about, if you haven't come across Jordan Peterson, then please check him out. He's got some very interesting philosophy going on. Um, please also check out guruviking.com and check out michaelaboem.com. The work that these guys are doing is cutting edge. It's, it's really, and I don't say that lightly, that's a kind of overused term, but these guys are very grounded. Um, they really do walk successfully in the modern world and they're bringing forth teachings from ancient mystical traditions in a very artful and sophisticated, safe, solid way. Um, and the training that I did with him, with, I did with these guys was, was the best training I've ever done in terms of the solidness of the container they created. I hope you enjoyed learning about the power of rituals and, and how optimizing one's life to be on an ever, ever evolving quest for, for deeper learning um, through that thing called curiosity. I think that's such a beautiful, uh, a beautiful quality that we have as human beings, the, po the possibility to be curious, so childlike, but it leads to such great riches in life. So please uh, let this be the inspiration to feed your curiosity and, and design your life in such a way that the exploration of what makes you curious becomes part of the fabric of your everyday life. And with that, guys, I wish you goodbye and stay in flow until next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.